This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. It's my great pleasure today to talk to a former student, uh, not just a regular student, but a very exceptional student, uh, Keith Norieka, who's now the acting controller of the currency. Um, I had a uh, particularly close relationship to Keith because not only was he one of my best students, but he was also a research assistant when I completed a book and provided uh, invaluable help. Uh, uh, the last time I could remember, Dealing with Keith in particular, I wrote a recommendation for him to go to Harvard Law School, and he did. And since then, he's had a remarkable career. Keith, could you fill us in a bit on what happened after Harvard? Sure, sure. I'm happy to, and thank you for having me here. Um, we just completed an event at the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, and it was my pleasure again to be with Professor Herring, who um, I had the pleasure to um, not only have in class, but also uh, to be a research assistant for at Wharton. And in fact, as I told Professor Herring for many years, I would go to my grandmother's house and see a picture of me getting my diploma from Wharton uh, and him giving it to me. So uh, even though many years have passed without talking to him, I've seen him often um, in, in that picture. And it's great to be back here today. So after Wharton, uh, as um, Professor Herring said, he did write me a recommendation uh, letter for, for Harvard Law School. It seemed to have worked. Uh, and uh, that's where I went um, after after Harvard for three years until I graduated. Then I went to clerk for a, a federal judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit in Houston for a year. And after that, in um, I suppose in the fall of 1998, I went to work for uh, a fairly large Washington law firm, Covington and Burling, uh, that specialized in banking regulation. And I was actually. Um, uh, the mentee uh, of a uh, future, at that point, future comptroller of the currency, John Dugan. Um, oh. And so I worked for him from 1998 until he assumed the office uh, that I now hold uh, in 2005. And then I worked again with him after his term was up in 2010 um, until I went to a different uh, Wall Street firm in uh, the, uh, the fall of 2016, uh, not expecting I'd find myself uh, in this position. Um, but after the financial crisis, the, um, the nature of banking regulation and certainly uh, private actors' uh, participation in, in that sphere had changed. Uh, when I grew up, it was an era of deregulation. Um, so really, um, what I had learned at Wharton and at Harvard Law School really translated a lot into uh, disputes uh, with various uh, authorities like the states and, and, and regulators about um, deregulation uh, and how to deregulate the markets. And while I learned all of the, you know, the ins and outs of, of regulation um, that had come um, in the, the years before and certainly uh, starting at, at Wharton, um, it, it really wasn't until the financial crisis that I think um, for people of my generation, we saw it all work the way a lot of people <laughs> always knew it to work. Um, and I always joke I had the pleasure, actually, of teaching a class at Penn Law School. Um, and, and I said that I had never actually dealt with a bank failure uh, until I had been a partner at a law firm for five years. And so, you know, it took me eight years to become a partner. I was, five, you know, so probably 13 years into practice before there were really any bank failures. And that was just uh, the sort of... Uh, cyclical, seasonal nature of banking regulation, although we did have quite a run 
um, back in those uh, years of the 90s and early 2000s uh, without any bank failure, probably the longest in the, in the nation's history. So uh, when it did come to change, um, the, the system sort of maybe reverted more to the mean, uh, and that's where my uh, skills became much more um, valuable in the in the transactional sphere, and that's sort of why I was uh, lured to a Wall Street law firm, um, and really was able to practice that type of transactional practice at the very highest levels. Um, and then unexpectedly, no one thought the election would turn out the way it did. Uh, certainly, I never did. Um, and I found myself, um, as John Dugan said, you know, there weren't many people. Um, that were fervent supporters of the president who were experts in banking regulation. Um, and maybe that was a subset of, you know, a couple of people, uh, and I was one of them. And I, I found myself on the president's transition team for the Treasury, not dealing with the OCC, uh, but in the course of that was able to help them sort of see uh, the value uh, of that agency and know what the issues were. And then um, obviously um, the, the new administration came in. The, transition was over, uh, went back to normal life, um, and then just, I guess, having known the Secretary uh, of the Treasury through the transition, um, it came that, uh, that my predecessor, Tom Curry's term, was up uh, last April, um, and then they had to figure out what to do. Uh, and while they had a nominee um, uh, picked um, that person, it was a very slow process uh, to get that person in place. And so that's when the Treasury uh, Secretary turned to me under an um, ancient statute, an 1864 statute, that allowed him to pick somebody from the outside to act as the com comptroller. And that's a very unique uh, type of statute in the federal government sphere. Um, and yet the Treasury Secretary thought it was important to make a change given the, the sort of, um, you know, uh, very definitive results uh, reflected in the election that that there needed to be a change, and if uh, Mr. Curry's term was up, we should we should move ahead with the change, and that's how I find myself here. Yeah, although your title is acting controller of the currency, um, you've really taken a very active role, which I guess is in keeping, although it's not I think necessarily true of interim leaders. Um, there are lots of things on your agenda. One of the most interesting, I think, is is looking at financial innovation. You actually have a special unit looking at it, uh, and the world is producing all kinds of new kinds of, of configurations of fintech firms that uh, are not yet regularly looked at in a, a, a normal regulatory framework. Uh, they come in a multitude of ways. They do partnerships with banks. They're sometimes freestanding firms, they can have state charters, they do partnerships, um, and so far there isn't really a federal charter except that you all have described what one might look like, and as I understand it, you're holding office hours in San Francisco and New York to talk to actual companies to see what might fit. Yeah, and look, this is something, um, first let me say, um, the history of the acting controllers of the currency is they uh, at least in my uh, lifetime, have all been very active. Um, John Walsh, who uh, was the interim between uh, John, uh, Tom Curry and John Dugan, uh, was a very active um, acting controller. And then Julie Williams, before that, uh, was quite active. And these were sort of formative uh, people of my youth growing up, of, of really 
um, that, as Julie uh, used to say, acting comptroller is meant to act, and, and sort of that's the philosophy I but took. But what's unusual about your situation is that you came in from the outside. They were I, both deputies. They were. And so it was sort of natural to continue on course. But yeah. it's, it's a different challenge to yeah. plug I mean, in. Except Ju Julie was sort of exceptional. I think she, she sort of took it to a different level, and I think John was as well in the sense of the, you know, certainly uh, going in a different direction um, than necessarily, um, you know, others were going at that time. Um, but yeah, I, look, we have this opportunity. My own view is I wouldn't have uh, left my career in private practice if I were meant to be a caretaker. That could be mm -hmm. taken by anyone. And I think the, the real, um, you know, uh, opportunity or, or reason I was asked by the administration was that they wanted to change, that the people voted for change and they needed to effectuate that change and they needed somebody to step up and do that. Now ironically, um, you know, the, the topic that we're talking about involves both change and continuity um, in the sense of it was, a, it was an initiative started by my predecessor, Tom Curry. Uh, but as I think um, we talked about at the, um, the Philly Fed Forum today, the notion of innovation in the national bank sphere is just been inherent in the 154-year history of the office that I now hold. Um, the office itself was really an innovation designed um, to finance the Civil War um, by setting up a national currency that hadn't existed since the Second Bank of the United States. That was uh, Salmon folded. P. Chase, wasn't That's it? right, it All was. Uh, so uh, he was the Treasury Secretary at the time. He ended up being Supreme Court, um, the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court after that. And what we've seen after that is that innovation has been an inherent part of the business of banking and certainly the business of banking under the National Bank Act for national banks. And so there have been sort of questions about whether annuities are part of the business of banking, ATM machines, data processing and internet banks. And what we're seeing today is sort of maybe an exponential curve uh, of disruption of technology and the way that people bank. But, you know, it's sort of what's old is new. And so it's not it's, qualitatively different. It's not it's qualitatively a... different. And I think so what, what I was, um, you know, I walked in, obviously the Office of Innovation was new, and yet it was something done by my predecessor. And as I've told a lot of people, it's um, almost something I couldn't imagine not having mm -hmm. uh, now. So it was, uh, you know, so, uh, it was a stroke of brilliance, um, and I think it just really captures the full history uh, of our national banking system, of which I'm proud to, you know, be a part of and, and maintain that continuity. But it will change, and, and I think people often ask me what my successor will do, and I can tell them a little bit of what he'd do, but we don't know because yeah. of the changing nature of technology what the issues will be presented, but we always know that there will be that core of the business of banking of taking deposits or making loans or paying checks. That will be at the heart of it, um, but, but the various natures and methods by which that may be delivered, um, you know, will change over time, and it should. Keith, what is the statutory language that allows you to be flexible mm -hmm. over time? Well, it is that phrase. Um, there are two phrases um, in Section 24-7 of the, the National Bank Act, which was enacted in 1864, that talks about the enumerated powers of a national bank of taking deposits, making loans, and all such incidental uh, powers uh, to the business of banking. And those two phrases, incidental powers and business of banking, are broad phrases subject to 
really um, the discretion of the person holding my office, the comptroller or the currency, to uh, construe uh, in a manner that best fits the business of banking at that time. And that's been upheld by unanimous Supreme Court cases for the past 154 years. So it's really been something where there's not been a lot of partisan uh, disagreement. I mean, many but it is cases. subject to regular challenge by other regulators. It is, isn't and it? it should be. Um, you know, I think, um, you know, with anything, um, there's discretion. The discretion cannot be exercised um, arbitrarily um, or in a way that doesn't make sense um, given given the precedents. But I think, with respect to the special purpose uh, fintech charter, which you know we have a regulation um, that really, you know, again, this is another example of. Um, you know, sort of doing things in new way, doing old things in new ways. The regulation that's being challenged now in court um, really is a regulation um, that dates from prior to the fintech era. It dates from about 2002, 2003. Entirely different reason um, it was adopted. Uh, it, it was meant to allow banks to do in subsidiary entities uh, mortgage lending and things like that. Um, that would be part of a national bank system when there were challenges uh, to doing that through state-owned, uh, state-chartered entities. Um, and that was a case that went ultimately to the Supreme Court that I litigated, uh, and they sided with the banks and the OCC in a, in a five to three ruling. So it, it, it ultimately that regulation at that time became moot because it could be done through a state-chartered entity. And I think what we're seeing now is the regulation itself says uh, that the business of banking um, means one of three things, taking deposits or making loans or paying checks. And I think the, the dispute is whether deposits always have to be taken. And I think why I feel very confident is that Congress itself um, in 1994 when they allowed interstate uh, banking actually defined the business of banking undertaken in interstate branches as one of the three. So it wasn't conjunctive, it was disjunctive. And so I think that you know made perfect sense for us as an agency in 2002, 2003 to adopt that uh, as the basis of uh, interpretation of the business of banking for purposes of a special purpose charter. And I think it will serve us well in the future if we decide to grant one of those to a financial technology company that doesn't take deposits. Now, most of the attention, in fact, has been on the prospect of this new charter, although, as I understand it, uh, nobody's actually gotten the charter yet. Uh, but it's not the only option that you can offer a fintech right. firm if um, their particular business plan and, uh, I guess, their, their uh, qualities meet your standards. Uh, you have special charters such as trust banks and uh, credit card banks and bankers' banks, I believe, and some of the fintech activity could presumably fit in those as well. Very much so, very much so, and I think, um, you know, that was sort of where I approached this as um, let us uh, sort of get our feet wet uh, as regulators, getting our hands around this massive disruption of financial technology in the banking system, and what we know how to do is to regulate full-service banks, but also these special purpose banks that have been around for decades, uh, if not longer, such as trust banks, credit card banks, bankers banks. Um, and there are a lot of fintech business models that fit well within them, uh, such as being you know, a 
custodian or trustee for a virtual currency ledger could easily fit within a trust bank. Um, certain payment mechanisms could easily fit within a credit card bank charter. And so that would be sort of an easy way. First of all, I think everyone would concede, even the state suing the OCC, that that would be a legal exercise of our authority. It wouldn't be subject to the restrictions of the Bank Holding Company Act. So there would be the freedom to do this uh, without those you know, draconian restrictions uh, on what you could be affiliated with. Um, and also, um, you know, it has the benefit of giving us an education on how these activities, it's sort of, um, it's a step into a pool and we're getting a little bit further in while we decide whether we want to, to exercise our right to use this special purpose charger for something that may be beyond those authorities. We in the United States are understandably obsessed with what's happening here, but we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that this is a worldwide trend and other countries are confronting exactly the same kinds of problems. And in fact, the fintech business has probably penetrated further in some other markets than in the United States. Uh, what seems to be very different about the U.S. is the challenge we have in establishing a regulatory framework. I guess I'm thinking in particular about the regulatory sandbox that the Bank of England has established that is intended to promote innovation and encourage competition, but within a sphere that's carefully monitored by the supervisors who are learning from it and trying to figure out uh, how, in fact, these entities should be regulated if they graduate from the sandbox. Why is it so difficult to do the same thing here? Well, look, I think first I would always characterize anything with innovation and financial technology as uh, opportunity rather than a problem. So these are opportunities. Opportunities come with obstacles to be overcome. I mean, that's the nature of technology and its disruption uh, in the first place. Um, I think, uh, look, I think we have a unique regulatory system in the United States. Maybe that is an understatement of understatements, uh, but it's organically developed. There are many different regulators, and in my own view, having been labored in these vineyards for the past um, quarter century, I actually think it works pretty well. Now, I think the challenge is, um, as you say, when we have uh, these sort of uh, new technologies that you want to try to insulate uh, and incubate uh, in a type of controlled environment without subjecting, subjecting them to heavy potential legal, li legal liability. That is very problematic and can be a barrier to entry. Um, but that, you know, to me, I think we as regulators have to focus on, okay, that is an obstacle. We want to try to do as much as we can to have a controlled environment. But on the other hand, because our system is fragmented, I as the acting comptroller don't have authority, say, to waive the Truth in Lending Act because that's not a statute that I administer or write the rules for. That's the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And so I think um, we can try as much as we can to educate and to insulate and to have pilot programs where we can, the, the regulator themselves, and perhaps with the cooperation of other regulators, we shouldn't underestimate the opportunities for that of like-minded regulators to act alike. Um, but, you know, we are sort of getting into a, we're obviously having a little disruption politically in the sense of the regulators are turning over. So I wouldn't be surprised at some point um, that we do have um, a little bit more regulatory coordination 
to encourage these type of activities. But on the other hand, you know, I must say, having been on the outside, there are opportunities here. Innovation usually surmounts obstacles, and you know, this is one of those obstacles that has to be overcome. But I think for a worthy purpose of the alternative, you know, is a system where you may have a regulatory sandbox, but you have one monolithic regulator uh, that determines the rules for all in all circumstances, and it can actually squelch innovation if you don't fit within the narrow parameters of the sandbox. So I think there's there are pros and cons to both things, but my own view is the system in America has been much more conducive to regu uh, to innovation over time. I think that's undoubtedly true. I used to say that if you weren't currently on the 10 most wanted list of the FBI, you could probably get some kind of bank or bank-like charter somewhere. But that's no longer true. Um, we've seen very few de novo banking mm -hmm. uh, operations uh, arising in, since the crisis, basically. Some of it undoubtedly is just adjustment. But there's a sense in which the barriers to entry have become much larger. The, and not least of which is, is the huge fixed cost of supervision, right. which is, is very difficult for a, a small bank to right. uh, be able to, to uh, bear in, in a competitive way. Yeah. Um, do you view FinTech as a way of, of sort of opening up the competitive space? Well, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. I think technology generally is sort of changing um, the way that Americans you know, conduct commerce and Banking uh, is part of commerce. I know that that may be sitting here at the <laughs> that Federal can make Reserve. Some people uh, that, that may be sort of a controversial topic, but look, I think that um, that that technology can help overcome those fixed costs clearly, uh, and certainly what we are sort of trying to design um, with a responsible approach to innovation. Uh, allows people through their private choices to order their affairs in a way that allows them a regulatory streamlined approach. And so in the sense of our uh, special purpose banks, the trust banks, credit card banks, um, and uh, bankers banks, or the special purpose fintech charter, if we get there, um, they are themselves a way uh, to order uh, your affairs um, and only have uh, limited, um, you know, one regulator, basically, the OCC, uh, to operate on a 50-state basis. You don't have to worry about being uh, per classified as a bank for purposes of the Bank Holding Company Act. So someone can own those institutions without being subject to regulation by the Federal Reserve, and it doesn't necessarily have to get FDIC insurance. So, and, and you know, Depending on the activities, they may or may not be subject to regulation by the CFPB. But there won't be any sort of state-by-state um, -state regulation attached either. So I think we have the opportunity to establish choices, at least, that uh, individual market actors can exercise if they want to opt into some more streamlined regulatory approaches to do that. And I think another aspect, even outside the fintech realm, is you are seeing for instance, a lot more banks get rid of their bank holding company and issue their shares to the public market uh, directly from the bank itself so they can, by operation of law, uh, streamline their, their regulatory approach. So it's not just even in the special fintech charter or the special purpose charter. You are seeing uh, market actors, because of the incredible uh, regulatory cost associated uh, with the, the banking um, business of banking after uh, the Dodd-Frank Act take sort of these measures 
um, you know, themselves uh, to, to minimize their regulatory exposure. I think you've implicitly answered one of the key questions that's always troubled me, which is if you're looking at an area in the shadow banking sphere like fintech, which has grown and become profitable, at least in part because they've been able to avoid bank-like regulations, what is the incentive for them to seek uh, a bank, even a limited bank, charter? Yeah. And given that, why do a federal charter rather than a state charter or just be a, a, a company within a state or even just partner with banks that are already authorized? We're seeing some of each, mm -hmm. but what is the new opportunity that a federal charter provides? And what I think I've heard you say is uh, unified streamlined regulation. I would add probably a reputation effect mm -hmm. because being known as a federally regulated bank, I think uh, as long as you guys manage your business well, enhances your reputation and, and conveys trust. Um, but it does come with additional costs. How do you think fintech firms are going to sort of weigh the costs and benefits? Well, um, look, I think it's in our advantage um, as regulators, as a society, to get the, to incentivize those institutions to come into the banking system because I think um, that makes it easier to regulate for purposes of, you know, bad stuff happening like criminal activity, like uh, threats to national security. Um, so I think and if they get big enough, even systemic risk is That's true, exactly. And, and it's certainly much easier to regulate them uh, through a bank charter um, if they do present those type of risks than if they don't have one. Um, and so, look, I think you've put your finger on what the potential benefits are in the sense of there is uniform regulation um, of regulation of a, of a national bank on a 50-state basis. There's also the ability, if they loan money, to do that on a nationwide basis subject to one state's interest rate uh, cap, so there won't be subject to 50-state laws. Um, and, and so there's a, more of an opportunity uh, to have a nationwide banking business, which is the whole purpose, one of the whole purposes of the, of the National Bank Act in the first place. The, the point of, of persuading these institutions to enter the regulatory structure, I think, is a really interesting one and, and uh, an important one. Uh, there's certain carrots you can offer, and I think this new charter may well be a significant one. Um, but there are also implicit sticks. There are a lot of regulations that they really can't avoid entirely by not being recognized as some species of bank. Uh, for example, my impression is that bank regulators are increasingly insistent that banks look into their vendors in terms of operational risks, cyber risks, whole range of things that they have to do for their own operations. Mm -hmm. um, are there other things that are sort of changing the balance of how you think about whether you want to be regulated or not? Well, I think um, in many ways what we're seeing, um, and I think we talked about it a little bit earlier, is that those third parties that may partner with banks may find themselves subject to that scrutiny regardless of mm -hmm. partnering with a bank or being a bank themselves. So I think those are just the reality um, of, you know, regulating the, the financial institution for systemic risk um, and, and for the the type of um, risk that gave, may give rise to, uh, um, you know, some type of systemic event. And certainly what we see a lot of with the partnerships are um, 
because of the sort of benefits of a bank charter, um, there, there really needs to be a bank involved, say, in the origination uh, of loans. And, and my own view is it would probably be better to keep that within the banking system rather than to have a partnership. But, you know, everyone has to um, order their fares, um, you know, to the best of their ability. And what we're doing is just giving people a choice, uh, assuming, you know, first we have our options of a full-service bank, uh, limited-purpose banks, but if we get to the special purpose charter, it would be another potential choice uh, for people to order their affairs. Um, and they may, you know, just want to bite the bullet and think, well, I'll get regulated having a partnership with a bank. Wouldn't it be better for me to get on the map and just do this myself? Because when you have more than one actor, say if you have to partner with a bank, that presumably... Um, you know, stands to reason that would be more expensive than just getting to be a bank charter yourself because you have to pay for all of their infrastructure. I mean, you're still paying for all the same costs undertaken by somebody else um, and paying them a premium for, 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 their, for the partnership. Um, and, and presumably you can internalize a little bit more of that yourself. But that obviously will be a, a decision um, taken by private market actors depending on you know, the state of the industry and the market at that time. Well, and the incentives are changing. Uh, yeah. We don't really have that charter yet on That's offer. True. And uh, the costs, I think, are actually increasing mm -hmm. as the intensity of uh, this responsibility for third-party right. uh, operations continues. Um, let me conclude with a more general question, because you've been a participant on sort of both sides of the regulatory right. world um, and have thought a lot about what would make a better system that would provide services uh, more efficiently, uh, yet safely. Mm -hmm. uh, and presumably that takes into account not only innovation, but streamlining regulation. What kinds of reforms do you think would be useful? We're now eight or nine years after the Dodd-Frank Act, and surely it is time to reconsider several dimensions. Yeah, I mean, look, I think... Um that's a very broad question uh, to be to be answered. I think um, we're headed in the right direction in the sense of um, we have to give market actors choice uh, about the best way to structure their business and achieve innovation and bring better products at lower prices to consumers. And I think that has to be the hallmark of it. Now, generally, uh, in my own view, um, that is accomplished in a free market economy through the government trying to set down rules uh, that you can meet and the government access the policemen if those aren't followed, uh, but generally stays out of private market, market actors' activities. I think the exception traditionally has been in the banking realm where there are runnable demand deposits that require some more prescriptive uh, ex-ante regulation of the activities of these institutions. But to me, that is a, an anomaly, first of all, in the way we regulate that industry, um, and also very expensive uh, as a society. And so I'd like to keep that to a minimum at all costs, and only uh, to regulate those activities of those institutions that could potentially cause systemic risk. Everything else done by those institutions, the risks presented by them, should be regulated more in the way you would regulate a normal business outside the banking sphere if it doesn't present systemic risk. So to me, we should fundamentally step back 
and say, why are we doing this? And we're doing it for the purposes of systemic risk transferred through runnable liabilities, demand deposits. Okay, what do we need to do to prevent that type of risk and do no more than that? And everything else that we might regulate those institutions for has to be separated out and treated more like the way you would you know, regulate the mattress company down the street or supermarket or something like that, um, or speeding on, on the highway. Um, if you do it, you get fined, and that's it. But we don't go in there <clears throat> and prescriptively uh, stop their business uh, because they happen to also have demand liabilities. So. You're raising an interesting question, though, and, and the example is certainly a, one that most people would agree that runnable liabilities are the crux of vulnerability, but the kinds of systemic risk we've seen emerge are broader than that, mm -hmm. in a way. Um, the crisis with securitization uh, involved assets that suddenly became illiquid and liabilities that were not deposit liabilities, but liabilities nonetheless that had to be repaid very quickly. Um, it raises for me the question of how do we monitor systemic risk? Like banking, it's not going to be static. That's right. It will change over time. We need to have some way of trying to anticipate rather than simply trying to patch things up once it happens. Yeah. Now that's a fantastic question and you are right in the sense of the trouble uh, with regulating, um, well, not, I don't know whether trouble, but something that is inherent in it, maybe is a better way to say it, is that it's a dynamic industry that changes over time. So what may have been a risk in the past may still be a risk in the future, but there may be other variants of, of it to emerge. And I think, um, first of all, the way historically we've handled that is, you know, there will be new banking legislation every five to ten years. I mean, it's just hap has happened. And mostly in our history it has been very bipartisan and consensus-based legislation. Dodd-Frank was the exception that was a rather partisan bill, but every other law before it certainly that I had experience with in my lifetime was bipartisan. So Gramlich-Bliley was, uh, Regal Neal was, you know, you keep going back uh, in time, Firea, Fiducia, uh, Siba. Um, and so, you know, these are things I think, first of all, the way I would answer your question is we should take a look as a society and decide what those risks are and the activities that present them and then you can regulate them in the same way as banks. We do it through clear rules that if you engage in the activity, you're subject to the rule. Now, the other way to do it sort of, you know, was occasioned in Dodd-Frank through the, the Financial Stability Oversight Council, um, but one of their authorities is to look at activities that can present systemic risk. So that could be another way is to use a body like that to set clear rules for specific activities that um, companies may engage in. I think that's another way. I think my one issue with the FSOC is I don't like picking out specific firms uh, of being um, systemically risky or not because I think that there's too much mischief to be had there of picking winners and losers based on who's in favor and who's in not at the time. I think it's better to clearly define activities that give rise to regulation and let private market actors decide whether or not they want to engage in them or not. Now, what official body should be responsible for trying to, to make that assessment? It, it's given that we have a, a whole 
welter of regulators with different mandates and different sort of scopes of activities, what entity should be responsible for monitoring how the system as a whole works? Well, I think it can be a body like FSOC, or it could be Congress. For you know, that's the way it's historically been done, right? They're the ones with the sovereign authority to uh, to enact laws. But, but they have a limited capacity to monitor continuously and. and but again, that's why I think over time we've had banking bills every five to seven years because the market changes. There's a, a perceived need for, uh, you know, a re regulatory recalibration and to do it. But if you wanted to do it through a sort of delegated authority to an administrative agency, I think an agency like FSOC could work uh, pretty well to do that mm -hmm. uh, if it were sort of, and look, all the actors are there. They see different parts of the marketplace. Right. Uh, to be able to sit at the table and look at specific activities and make a judgment on whether those should be regulated as, as a systemic uh, risk. And so that, that's, I think, the system we have in place today, although it hasn't really been used that way. Good. Thank you very much. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a, it's a pleasure trip to down memory lane. So <laughs> I, I encourage all the Wharton students. Uh, to you know, study hard, um, and uh, and you will you will be very successful. And I remember uh, many years uh, looking at the the wall of fame, and it was Justice Brennan, Michael Milken, Lawrence Tisch, and Donald Trump. And and uh, you know, it's uh, it's quite an honor, um, you know, to just think it wasn't that long ago that I was uh, sitting in your office or sitting next to your office, going through all the the Basel uh, books that uh, now we're on Basel 3, 4, or whatever it was, but at that time that was a brand new concept of uh, But I can vouch for the facts. fact that you know your facts. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you very much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.